Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of our finest reporting and analysis from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on our menu, Kenya takes a stance against the scourge of plastic bags. The world thirsts for exotically priced bottled water and the chilling new health fad sweeping America. But first, can Europe be saved was our cover line this week. The European Union celebrated its 60th birthday, yet with Britain leaving and ongoing pressure from migration, it's under unprecedented strain. To survive, it'll need to become a lot more flexible, as our cover leader argued. On March 25, 1957, With the shadow of the Second World War still hanging over them, six European countries signed the founding treaty of a new sort of international club. The European Union, as this club became known, was a resounding success and exceeded even the expectations of its founders. Not only underpinning peace on the continent, but creating a single market as well as a single currency and bringing into its fold ex-dictatorships to the south and ex-communist countries to the east, as it expanded from six members to 28. Yet after its sixth decade, threats to the Union's survival come from the outside. A newly aggressive Russia under Vladimir Putin, and in Donald Trump, an American president who is unenthusiastic about both the EU and NATO, make this a terrible time for Europe to be weak and divided. Yet also from within. Prolonged economic pain has contributed to a plunge in support for the EU. Populist anti-European parties are attacking the EU's very existence, not least in France, where Marine Le Pen is doing uncomfortably well in the presidential campaign. The answer to the union's woes, we proposed, is a more flexible entity. In Eurospeak, this means embracing a multi-tier system, with the countries of a much wider Europe taking part to different degrees in its policies and able to move from one tier to another with relative ease. To see how that might work, you can read our special report on the future of the European Union in this week's issue. While Europe may be putting the champagne on ice, over in the United States section this week, a box reported on a chilling new health fad spreading across the country, cryogenics. This uncomfortable treatment has little scientific backing, yet it's nevertheless finding many a paying customer. Our correspondent stepped into a clinic to see what all the cold fuss is about. Opened last year, Cryozone invites customers to spend $75 for three minutes in a cryogenic chamber cooled to minus 110 degrees Celsius for fledgling freezers and minus 132 Celsius for chilling connoisseurs. The treatment is meant to calm inflammation and soothe muscle soreness. But Angelinos swear by it to solve all sorts of ills, from tennis elbow to the urgent need to lose a bit of weight before a daughter's wedding. 
The supposed cure for all seasons was invented in Japan in 1978, so it's not exactly new. But it was not until European rugby and football teams started freezing themselves in the past decade that it became more popular. America, which boasts at least 400 cryotherapy spas, is the first place to offer wide access to it. And people are warming to it, in spite of the ominous experience. Customers step into a round canister that looks like a galactic witch's cauldron, frothing with liquid nitrogen vapor, and ring a bell to solicit assistance. The spa's friendly business development manager presses the timer and instructs his charge to rotate slowly as he makes small talk to speed the three minutes. It doesn't work, as the skin's temperature drops from 33.8 degrees Celsius to 1 degrees Celsius. Horribly intense tingling starts, not so much pins and needles as swords and daggers. After 180 seemingly interminable seconds, the machine mercifully beeps. And hey presto, one chilled human. But does it actually work? Scientific studies on whole-body cryotherapy are inconclusive at best. So all pain and potentially no gain. To see for yourselves, there's a picture of our correspondent inside the chamber in this week's issue. If you think the whole thing is absurd, ask yourself this: How much would you pay for water? While around the world, a new fashion is gathering pace for exotic H2O with a hefty price tag. As an article in our business section explained, it seems that people are thirsty for it. Harvested directly from Norwegian icebergs that are up to four thousand years old, Svalbardi is one of hundreds of water brands that are sourced from exotic places and marketed as luxury products. On sale for eighty pounds—that's ninety-nine dollars—in Harrods, an upmarket department store in London, it has a price tag to match. Indeed, the market for bottled water is shimmering with success. According to Zenith Global, a consulting firm, the global market has grown by nine percent annually in recent years, and is worth one hundred and forty-seven billion dollars. It's undoubtedly helped by minimal production costs. The cost of the raw material, which comes from either natural or municipal sources, is next to nothing. The main costs are packaging, distribution, and marketing. At the other end of the scale, convincing customers to pay a lot should be hard when your product doesn't have a distinctive taste, and an alternative is freely available from the tap in most rich countries. Also, you might have thought, but premiumization is working. Many companies are now suggesting that water isn't just water anymore; it's、mm, lifestyle. Coca-Cola's premium water brand, which is advertised by Jennifer Aniston, is marketed as inspirational water for successful people. So, if you're thirsty for a deeper draft, why not head to our business section and read more? Trickling back into the front pages of this week's issue, an article in our Middle East and Africa section explored another of humanity's guilty pleasures: plastic bags. Useful but devastating for the environment, so countries around the world have started to legislate against their use, and Kenya has joined the roster. Since their invention in the 1960s, disposable plastic bags have made lives easier for lazy shoppers the world over. But once used, they become a blight. And while they look unsightly scattered across any landscape, in some quarters they really can do some damage. Filled with rainwater, they are a boon for malaria-carrying mosquitoes. Dumped in the ocean, they kill fish. They may take hundreds of years to degrade. Most of us probably won't be around to see that, so it's welcome that another African nation has ruled against plastic bags. On March fifteenth, 
Kenya announced that it will become the second country in Africa to ban them. It follows Rwanda, a country with a dictatorial obsession with cleanliness, which outlawed them in 2008. And it appears well-timed too. As Kenyans get richer and move to cities, the amount of plastic they use is growing. By one estimate, Kenya gets through 24 million bags a month, or two per person. Americans, by comparison, use roughly three per person. A little food for thought there. Now for a taste of our other podcast from this week. On The Economist Asks, I interviewed Tony Blair. He's leading a campaign to stop Brexit. But can he and should we? As I will say to people, it's like the old you know, analogy I use about house swapping. I mean, last year's vote in the referendum was an agreement or a decision that we wanted to swap homes. But we haven't actually seen the other house yet. Now we're going to have the opportunity to go around, see the neighbourhood, do the structural survey, have a look and see if it's to our liking or not. If it appears that it's not to our liking, then obviously it's open to people to change. Tony Blair and his Brexit backlash there. On our science and technology show Babbage, we took a look under the bonnet of Uber, the ride-sharing company. It appears to be in turmoil after a tumultuous six weeks in which several key executives left – Alexander Suich, our United States technology editor and Uber expert, assessed the situation. At this stage in Uber's life, you know, it's a it's a seven-year-old company and it's the most highly valued private technology company in America. Its private market valuation is around $70 billion. So having problems like this, while they might not permanently hamper the business, first of all, is a distraction and second of all, cast doubt on whether Uber will be able to live up to the high expectations. With Uber weathering a bumpy ride, over in our Money Talks podcast, we heard about one country burning rubber in the tyre industry. China's tyre producers have made huge inroads into the market. But The Economist's industry editor Simon Wright says that the quality of incoming merchandise doesn't quite hit the mark. Chinese tyres are not as good. They wear out more quickly. They don't stop as well in the wet or even in the dry. As in the future we have autonomous cars and ride-sharing and car-sharing becomes increasingly more popular, tyres will be increasingly bought by fleets. Fleet managers do a total cost of ownership calculation and they can work out that, in fact, the tyres from the rig established brands are a better deal. Our final taste of this week's issue is about a man who drove the music industry in an entirely new direction. An obituary in our Books and Arts section explored the life of the influential rock and roll pioneer, the late, great Chuck Berry. The honour of having made the first rock and roll record is usually given to Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats for Rocket 88 in 1951. Like all musical firsts, this is hotly argued over. Landmark singles by Bill Haley, Big Joe Turner, Elvis Presley and Bo Diddley are often considered close rivals. But any doubt about the arrival of true flat-out rock was extinguished by Maybelline in 1955, a two-minute ditty by Chuck Berry. Indeed, the song inspired a musical renaissance. What distinguished Maybelline was not so much the low-down distortion of Mr Berry's chitlin circuit lead guitar and the raw sound of his band, but the song's departure from the swinging R&B polish of its contemporaries. Mr Berry was behind the wheel, and though he was heading somewhere new, he knew exactly where. He was first and foremost a storyteller, but one whose own tale had to end. Mr Berry's songwriting waned as he struggled with scandals and personal demons, but his influence did not. Chuck Berry may have duck-walked off the world stage, 
but his music never will. Time for us to duck off now, though. As that's the end of this week's tasting menu, we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue, and you can find our other podcasts online. Keep sending us your feedback by email to radioeconomist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 